Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. We'll get to my interview with Daniel Sered in just a second, but first, the news. Every day, I see a new story about the impact of the understaffing and underfunding of South Carolina prisons. This week, correctional officers did nothing while a man was being attacked and then left him in the yard to die before getting to his body. A few days later, a correctional officer was implicated in attacking a woman who was in prison while she was already restrained. You will rarely see me ask for more correctional officers, but if you're going to run a prison system, if you're going to put human beings in cages, you should at least have it properly staffed. At some facilities in South Carolina, they are at a ratio of 250 people incarcerated for every one correctional officer. For contrast, at the prisons where I was incarcerated, the ratio is around 80 incarcerated people to every one correctional officer. That is obviously not acceptable what is going on in South Carolina. We're, of course, also seeing the effects of chronic understaffing and overcrowding in Alabama. I've heard rumors of of similar situations in Florida, Texas, and North Carolina. It's unfortunately a very... It's a large number of states. It sure seems very clear to me that prisoners have become disposable, that what happens to them seems to barely matter to the people of their states. This is what happens when you spend decades upon decades telling your population that certain classes of human beings are irredeemable monsters. What happens when you tell your population that certain classes of human beings are irredeemable monsters is that you and your population become monstrous too. What we do to the people in our care says as much about us as it does about them. Which, although this is a weird way to put it, is a perfect lead-in to my interview with one of the greatest warriors for justice and restorative justice that I've ever encountered, Danielle Surratt. Danielle Sered received her B.A. from Emory University and her master's degree from New York University and Oxford University, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar. She served as the deputy director of the Vera Institute's Adolescent Reentry Initiative, a program for young men returning from incarceration on Rikers Island. She worked at the Center for Court Innovation's Harlem Community Justice Center, where she led its programs for court-involved and recently incarcerated youth. And now, Danielle has envisioned, launched, and directed Common Justice. She led the project's efforts, locally in Brooklyn, but national in scope to develop and advance practical and groundbreaking solutions to violence that advance racial equity, meet the needs of those harmed, and do not rely on incarceration. And she's the author of the new book, Until We Reckon. And as an aside, I've rarely had so many people excited to hear that I was interviewing someone on this podcast. Hello, Danielle, and welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I always ask a version of the same first question. In this case, how did you get from being a Rhodes Scholar in, if I remember correctly, an entirely different field to doing the work you're doing now? And feel free to share as much or as little as you feel comfortable sharing. I mean, in many ways, the my time in England was a time out from the real path that got me to where I was um, or to where I am. I grew up in Chicago and I grew up there Um, I sort of came of age in the late 80s and early 90s. At the same time, mass incarceration was really sort of getting its sea legs nationally. nationally. And in that time, I saw, you know, people go away, saw families struggle in their absence, saw people come home, usually worse for having been gone. And then at the same time that I could feel the palpable negative impact on the rising use of incarceration on our neighborhood. For a while, I assumed that while it was harmful to those incarcerated, while it was harmful to their families, that it must be good for the people they hurt, because that's why all of our public conversation was saying we were doing it in the first place. But I started to pay attention to my own experiences surviving violence, to the experiences of people around me, And I found that actually far fewer of us wanted incarceration than the public discourse reflected. And that even for those of us who did and got it, um, that incarceration never delivered to us the healing, the safety, the peace that we hoped and thought it would and that we ultimately deserved. And so it took me a while from seeing those things, from suffering the impact of those things growing up, 
to finding a pathway to doing something about them. Hmm. So your book starts with two quotes. In particular, I want to raise the one from James Baldwin. We can make America what America must become. Can you talk a bit about how race haunts mass incarceration and why coming to grips with that history is critical to finding solutions? Absolutely. So our history of incarceration in this country, our practice of it now is inextricably intertwined with the history that precedes it, the history of Jim Crow, of convict leasing, of mass inc- of slavery, even of the colonization of this country. And our institutions that we have built in this country have built been built on a fundamentally racist foundation down to a constitution that envisioned black people as three-fifths of a person um, to the practices we engaged in, in the not just enslavement, but the torture of people who people dared to believe they could own the separations of families from one another, the extraordinary violence we've committed for which we have never atoned as a country. And that history has persisted and morphed in different forms into mass incarceration as we know it. You know, Michelle Alexander most famously tracks that trajectory, um, but there are also people like Douglas Blackman in his book Slavery by Another Name that traces its evolution into convict leasing and into incarceration as we know it. We can't talk about undoing mass incarceration. We can't talk about what it is and isn't and what we as a country can become without talking about who we have been. So in my experience, when we push for change or reform, legislators will generally play along as long as the reforms we are pushing extend only to the people sentenced for nonviolent or low-level crimes. But you say in the introduction that one thing is certain about the problem of violence, we will never solve it through incarceration. I suspect that might be surprising to some people. Why did you say that? Largely, it's because we make a mistake in this country of talking about incarceration as either something that keeps us safe or that fails to keep us safe. But it's actually worse than both of those. Incarceration is generative of violence. So we at Common Justice, the organization I direct, are in the business of ending violence. And those of us in that business know the core individual drivers of violence, not the large structural ones like inequity and substandard housing and poor education and inadequate health care, but the ones that are about the individual people who may or may not cause harm. Those drivers of violence are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. The core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. It means we have baked into our responses to violence exactly the things that create it. That is not what a country that wants to be safe does. And so on the one hand, it's true that we will not end mass incarceration without tackling violence, if only because more than half of the people locked up in this country are locked up for crimes of violence. It is equally true that we will not end violence without tackling mass incarceration. Yeah. And part of that, as I think you mentioned before, is a little bit of an official narrative of how victims play into this. I live in Michigan and the Prosecuting Attorneys Association of Michigan has a whole set of pages on their website about victims' rights. Is our justice system is currently constituted and its officers serving and representing the voices and interests of victims well? Absolutely not. Um, The system is representing the voices and interests of some victims well, and those victims deserve to be represented well. The problem is that the victims whom the current system serves are a tiny fraction of the overall wide range of people who are hurt. It's important to note that fewer than half of victims of crime even call the police in the first place when they've been hurt. That means a full half of people who will have guns to their heads, who are rendered unconscious, who suffer serious injury prefer nothing to everything that system has on offer. That is a profound indictment of the system that we have never grappled with as a country. Another half of those victims who do call the police won't make it past the grand jury process. So they'll engage the police, but as the process starts to move forward in the criminal justice system, they will divest from it, usually because they don't think it can bring them the things that they need. Those remaining victims are... Um, the people most interested in jail and prison. And in common justice, it's that group of victims who we reach out to and say, 
Are you interested in having the person who hurt you incarcerated or interested in seeing them in this alternative program? And when asked that question, 90% of victims choose common justice, 90%. It's a wild number. And when I first started seeing that trend, I became very hopeful. I sort of thought that we as human beings were better than I had known. Like we were more compassionate. We were more forgiving. We thought, but for the grace of God, go I. Sadly, I don't think that's the main thing that was going on. Yeah, I think you mentioned, didn't you mention in the book that, you know, people like if they're given three choices, one of which is like kind of life without parole, one of which is uh, mercy, and one of which is what they get now, they'll definitely choose either the, the life without parole or the mercy, right? Well, I wouldn't say mercy, no. What I would say is they will choose a thing that they believe will hold the person meaningfully accountable and change their behavior. So the example you're talking about is someone we talked to um early in our process in common justice. And it speaks to what's really happening if it's not actually compassion and mercy. What's happening is pragmatism. The two things survivors can't stand are either A, the thought of going through what they went through again, or B, the thought of someone else going through what they went through. And so at the end of the day, no matter the degree of loss and pain and rage and desire for revenge that we feel, all of which are legitimate feelings, at the end of the day, we as survivors will choose what works. And so the story you're referring to is a man who was really terribly robbed at gunpoint, feared for his life, ran for his life, was presented with this question about whether the person who hurt him should come to common justice or to go to prison. And he said, well, can this person get life without parole? And I said to him, the New York statute doesn't allow it for this crime. And he said, then let's do common justice. And at first that seems silly. You would think, you know, if the young man who hurt him could do eight years, that surely that would be better than the zero years he does in common justice if it's somebody who has an appetite to see this person locked up forever. The reason he said that is that he knew if that this person was ever going to be home again, he wanted them to be different. So the part of him that was furious, that was what was done to him, wanted this man gone forever. I understand that part. The part of him that knew that this man would not be gone forever had to ask the question, if not forever, then who do I want him to be? And he made the really sound judgment based on a ton of observation of what he had seen as the impact of incarceration in his neighborhood, that this person would not be better for some time away. And so if he wasn't going to be gone forever, better that he be changed. That's not about mercy. It's about self-interest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you also uh, tell a story about a discussion you had with a woman, uh, Miss Annie, mm -hmm. uh, about kind of the outcomes of that even when people do want uh, incarceration or do want um, kind of more forms of punishment, that ultimately that isn't always healing. Is that correct? That's right. Miss Annie was one of my early teachers and mentors. She was an elder in a neighborhood I was working in, Atlanta, when I was in college, and she was really horribly hurt by a young man. Um, and she called the police, and the young man was apprehended, which doesn't always happen. And it, the case went to trial, which actually happens only in about 3% of cases. And he was found guilty, and he was sentenced to the maximum. And along the way, she was treated with a good amount of respect by the system actors. And so her case is actually, in some ways, an example of the criminal justice system doing its work at its best, like far better than it usually does. And so I asked her about it. And I said, you know, with all respect, can I ask you, when that young man was sentenced, were you relieved? And she said, oh, absolutely. And I said, and can I ask you how long that relief lasted? And she said, oh, baby, at least three or four hours. And she said, but then I got off the bus to go home. And I was, I got off the bus in my neighborhood when I was going home. And I was still afraid. And I got into my apartment and I was still poor. And I got into bed to go to sleep and I still couldn't fall asleep. And when exhaustion finally took me, I still woke with the same nightmares. And the next morning I woke up and the only thing that was different is that I could not shake the vision of that boy's mother's face because her face is my face. 
what Anne was speaking about is the reality that it is not actually an individual person possessed with some kind of evil that makes us unsafe. The things that make us unsafe are the qualities in our neighborhoods, the lack of, of economic opportunity, the structural inequities, like all of the things that make violence almost inevitable. And there's no amount of removing individual people that changes those. What changes those kinds of things is the presence of opportunity, is the presence of economic equity, is the presence of good schools, of good mental health care, of good treatment, of good hospitals, of good child care, of all of those other things. And the incarceration of this young man who hurt her in a way no one has a right to hurt anyone, undoubtedly, did not change those things in her neighborhood, did not make her someone who was safe, did not answer her questions about why he did what he did, didn't force him to face her face to face and confront the pain that he had caused, didn't give her any reason to believe that he would change and not do it again so that she or others would be safer. And so while she went through that process, and while that process delivered its very best, its very best was nothing of what she ultimately deserved. And, um, you know, I think when we're talking about this kind of official narrative, I, mean, I feel like we as a society have kind of bought so into this. And part of the reason, I think, is because of an analogy. You make a great analogy to a single bad burger joint in the desert. Could you, could you, uh, it's really one of my favorite parts of the book. So, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think. We believe in this country that we can predict what people will do in the presence of options based on what they'll do in the absence of options. And by that, I mean, right now we say, do you want incarceration or nothing? People will choose incarceration over nothing because nothing feels disrespectful and unbearable. Though I already shared that half of victims choose nothing at the beginning. And so I've said, like, you imagine there's like, you're in the middle of the desert, you're driving on the highway. And there's nothing for hundreds of miles except this burger joint selling really crappy burgers. And you see a huge line like running down this kind of sand of this place. And if you were to surmise from that, that A, these burgers were amazing, or B, everyone loves burgers, you'd be making a mistake. What's true is that it is the only thing there for people to eat. And in reality, if you put a pizza spot and a Chinese spot and a taco spot and a veggie spot all next door to that burger joint, that line would diminish to almost nothing. It doesn't mean no one would want the crappy burger. Someone would. But the portion of people who would would be extraordinarily small. And so we have to understand that that's like incarceration is that burger stand. And we cannot assume that people's appetite for incarceration would persist if they actually were offered something else alongside it or instead. So we've come a long way in a short time. Prisons won't solve violence. The system probably isn't serving all victims' needs. But people will often say this is all fine and good. But the purpose of punishment is to deter. Do you find that prison deters? Absolutely not. So deterrence depends on a wide variety of things. De deterrence depends, first of all, on people having a certain amount of civic education to know what the penalties will be for the crimes they commit. I've yet to meet almost anyone who committed a crime who actually knew what the promise sentence for that crime would be. And so we don't have a robust enough civic society that people are actually acting in a way that's in relationship to those promised consequences. Deterrence depends on consistency. So deterrence only works if I commit crime A, then consequence B happens to me. And if I commit crime X, consequence Y happens to me. What happens now is that people commit very serious crimes and are unapprehended for those. There are cities where like Chicago, where the clearance rate for homicides is 15%. People in the neighborhoods often know exactly who committed those murders. They see them in front of them day in and day out, unapprehended for the crime. And at the same time, on the same block where that blood was spilled, they see people arrested for low-level infractions. They see people railroaded for drug crimes they didn't even commit. And so what people reasonably see is that that like crime A can produce any number of outcomes, though it's rarely B. Crime X can produce 
any number of things, so it's rarely why. And the only thing that seems to be a good predictor of one's outcome is one's race, which is not something that can be deterred, right? It's not something that can be changed. <laughs> the other thing that matters is that, so it means not only does deterrence depend on actual consistent application of consequences to actions it also depends on some promise that if you keep your part of the bargain if you don't commit crimes you will get a decent life like you will get at the very least you will not be incarcerated which is still not promised for the number of people innocent of crimes who become incarcerated for them but also that like, you can make a basic living wage you can live a basic decent life like those things are supposed to be available to you and some kind of social contract in exchange for not engaging in criminal activity. And that promise is also not kept. And so there is nothing in how we do criminal justice and the inconsistency and inequity of its application that makes it remotely reasonable to expect that it would serve as an effective deterrent. And I think others will say an eye for an eye that if you commit uh, harm, you should be harmed. Or if you can't do the time, don't do the crime is the one most people say. Is, is retributive justice helpful? To whom? I think retributive justice is helpful to some politicians and their campaigns to win. It doesn't heal <laughs> us. Like if I could resolve the deep pain I carry from the hardest losses in my life by hurting someone else. I don't know. I like to think I wouldn't. I like to think I'm ethical enough that I wouldn't hurt anyone, but I'm not sure. Like if I could actually be rid of that pain just by passing it on, I don't know that I wouldn't. It doesn't work. Like hurting other people does not make us hurt less. I've said in other contexts, it's like the criminal justice system. If someone burns down your house, all the criminal justice system can offer to do is to burn down their house, but it can't rebuild yours. And what you need is somewhere to sleep. And so I actually think the number of people who are interested in sort of punishments for punishment's sake is far fewer than it has been historically, far fewer than we assume it to be. And that the portion of people who carry that belief, they have a disproportionately small number of crime survivors among them. The people who have actually been hurt want things that will produce safety, want things that will improve their own lives, want things that will help them come through what happened to them. And some philosophical idea of what punishment is about and the core meaning of retribution as a way society communicates and all of that is meaningless to somebody who is looking at the ashes of where they used to live and faced with someone who only comes up to them with a torch and an offer to run down the block. And I think some people would also then suggest that maybe the best idea is to put make the court process more uh, victim friendly. I think right now in Pennsylvania, they're considering a, a constitutional amendment for Marcy's Law. Does this seem promising? So I don't think victim friendly and Marcy's Law are the same. Um, I think, you know, when we look at all of the laws, sneaky suspicion. when we look at all the laws named after victims, almost every single one of them is named after a white woman. Um, as a white woman survivor of violence, I know that we can endure really extraordinary, serious pain and, you know, experience things that should never happen to us. We are also the vast minority of people who are hurt. We're not representative of the full range of victims changing whole structures to fit our needs when we are actually the people least likely to use those structures doesn't make sense. Um, like if you were building a door into a house and you looked to the like four foot tall kid in front of you and built the door with them in mind, you'd have a hard time getting everyone who needed to come in and out of that house <laughs> and, and through your doorway. Like we don't, we've not built a system that actually centers the needs of survivors, um, like the full range of survivors that actually listens to those survivors about what we want. What happens is when there are survivors who seek particularly punitive paths, um, politicians very often join hand in hand with them to support their mission to achieve that increased punitiveness. And when survivors ask for anything else, they're very often left with, you know, their hands unheld by just about anyone. And so the criminal justice system should become more 
more, I don't even know friendly, but more hospitable for victims, more respectful for victims. But one of that thing, things that will mean will mean respecting victims who express a wide range of views about what they want. Like I know one of our early victims called the assistant district attorney in his case and said, you know, I don't want to see this person go to jail. That doesn't do anything for me. I want them to answer to me for what they did. I want to get to talk to them. I want to get to ask questions. I want to get to shape what they have to do. This was before even new common justice existed. This is just what he was saying he wanted. And the assistant district attorney said, you know, well, it's a felony, a case. It doesn't matter what you want. And the victim said, well, I'm the victim. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I'm the DA and hung up the phone. Right. That's not an outlier kind of behavior. And so when prosecutors' offices actually become more victim-centered, what happens is that they have to listen to a whole range of victims, including victims who are telling them that they don't want them to pursue the harshest penalty, that that's not the thing they're looking for. Like, you look at all of the press and conversation around D.A. Canizaro in New Orleans, where his office continually issues what are called material witness orders, but are really subpoenas to drag victims in to testify. So victims who do not want to testify in the cases get picked up by police, thrown in the back of a car, sometimes handcuffed, brought in, forced to testify against their will. Victims who refuse to do that there and in other jurisdictions, including in Houston under the previous district attorney there, have been incarcerated during the pendency of the case to ensure that they will show up to testify. So you were like the prosecutors are incarcerating victims of crimes to force them to testify in the cases about the harm they endured. That's not a victim centered system. And so we have to understand that if we're actually, if we believe victims should be centered in the criminal justice process, and it's fine, honestly, if we don't, if we say, actually, it's about a violation to the state, it's not about the victims, I'm comfortable with that, but then don't do it in their names. Do it in the name of the state um, and don't leverage their stories. Don't leverage their pain. Don't pretend to be their spokespeople. But if we are going to try and make a victim-centered system, we have to be ready for a system that is going to be led primarily by those most harmed, which means we have to be ready for a system that is going to be most consistent with the needs, for instance, of 16 to 25-year-old young men of color and what justice looks like for them. And if that's what we mean by a victim-centered system, sign me up. Hmm. Well, uh, there's one other complication left before we get to solutions. Uh, you know, as someone who personally has both been a victim of violence and committed crime, uh, you know, I was very moved in Bruce Western's recent book that when he said that most people who commit violence have also been witnesses of and victims of violence. Mm -hmm. You suggest in your book multiple times that most people who commit violence have also been the victims of violence. But I've seen a lot of organizations push back against the idea of cycles of violence. Uh, what are your thoughts here? I've yet, I've met probably thousands of people who have committed violence, and I've yet to meet a single person who didn't survive it first. And I don't, I want to be really clear that that doesn't excuse people for the violence they commit. Like I myself, as someone who survived violence, I don't think I'm entitled to hurt someone because of it. And if I do, I am as accountable for causing that pain as I would be if I weren't a survivor. But at the same time, I am entitled to something as a survivor. I'm entitled to support for my healing. I'm in a country that is supposed to protect me and failed to. And I'm entitled to the kind of resources and services and supports that will help me come through what happened to me. And I believe I remain entitled to that even if I go on to cause pain, just like I remain accountable even if we understand that part of why I caused harm is because I was hurt. The people who get off the hook too often and should not are all of the rest of us who have tolerated a society in which the vast majority of victims get no access to any formal pathways to healing whatsoever. And so when people fail to, when people don't get access to that, when we fail to provide it, when they pass that pain on to others, that pain is in part our burden to bear. It's ours to own up for, to be accountable for, and to think about how to repair. I think about um, Novita Johnson-Harrell, who was recently elected to the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania, and who lost a number of people, including her son, to murder. And 
she talks about um, that the person who murdered her son was formerly incarcerated, had been locked up in the juvenile system, had never gotten any kind of care for the trauma he had been through, and went on to hurt her child. And she said, of course, she holds the young man who hurt her child accountable, but she also holds accountable that system that had him in its grip for years and years and years and didn't do a single thing to reduce the likelihood that he would hurt someone else. And that system's failure is partly responsible for why this woman had to weep over her child's grave. And that's a really uh, sad but good lead into the notion of accountability. So what is accountability and why doesn't prison or our criminal justice system do a good job of delivering accountability? What makes accountable accountability different than what our system is delivering now? So we like to say accountability a lot in this country, and we don't really know what we mean by it. And we don't really do it. Um, when we say accountability, we usually mean punishment. We say this person has to be held accountable, and we mean locked up. Um, but the problem is accountability and punishment aren't the same thing. And increasingly in this work, I've come to believe that they're antithetical to each other. So punishment is passive. Like Punishment is something someone does to me. All I have to do to be punished is not escape it. Accountability is different. Accountability requires that I acknowledge what I did, acknowledge its impact, express genuine remorse, make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those I hurt, and become somebody who won't cause that harm ever again. That's some of the hardest work any of us will ever do. And there are very few places that make that less likely or more difficult than a prison. A prison separates me from the people I hurt. It insulates me from having to hear from them about how I impacted them, to have to face their pain, have to look them in the eyes and acknowledge what I've done. It means I never get to answer their questions about why I did what I did, the kinds of answers that would help them bring some closure to their loss and to what they endured. It limits my ability to reckon honestly with what I've done, in part because the environment encourages denial, and in part because the environment is just chaotic. Like, you don't get a moment of quiet. You don't get a moment of peace. It's not, it is the least reflective space you can imagine a person being in. And it constrains my ability to make it right. Like, not only can I not do things like pay forward my obligation by being a different kind of person in my neighborhood, by helping young people walk a different path, by doing something of meaning with my life, but I can barely do things like pay restitution when, if I'm lucky, I get a job that pays me 14 cents an hour. And so all of the things that constitute accountability, which is of extraordinary use to the people who were hurt, are constrained, if not eliminated, by prison. That doesn't mean there aren't people in prison who actually come deeply to terms with what they have done, but prisons shouldn't be credited for that. People should be. They're doing something nearly impossible in an environment that makes it more and more difficult. Um, and the people who do that despite that environment are extraordinary, and it's not the environment that deserves recognition for it. Yeah, my interest in, uh, as we're moving towards this, my interest in restorative justice started way long ago when I started reading uh, articles about what had happened in South Africa and Rwanda with Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, that was way before I ever became impacted directly myself. Uh, what does restorative justice mean to you and how would it work as an alternative to incarceration? So... Restorative justice is a process where the people most directly impacted by a harm come together to reach agreements about how that harm can be repaired. And so it is a process in which the people whose lives are at stake are given the power to define that repair. And it's not just a conversation. It's an, it's, it generates a set of agreements about what the responsible person will do to make things as right as possible. In Brooklyn and the Bronx at Common Justice, we do this in cases of serious violent felonies. Or with victims' consent, um, and this is what I was referring to when I said 90% of victims say yes, responsible parties come into the program, go through an intensive preparatory process and violence intervention curriculum, and then we convene a dialogue between them and the people they hurt, where we reach agreements about how they can make things as right as possible. Those agreements may be things like do community service, get a job, pay restitution, apologize to me, apologize to my family. And there may be things like 
speak in the neighborhood to other young people to keep them from going down the path you went down. Um, do community service in a place for veterans because my family has a history of service in the military. Like do something of meaning. And there may be things that happen, like one case where the young man said, or the harm party said, you know, I want you to meet the father, the children whose father you almost took from them that night with your gun. And I believe today in the father you can be to your baby girl, and I want to say that to her face. So things that are far more personal and connected than we would expect as the aftermath of harm between strangers. A common justice, if our responsible parties complete those agreements and go through the entirety of our curriculum, they don't go to prison and the felonies are removed from their records. And in the meantime, we work with the victims of their crime, with the people they hurt, to help them come through what happened to them and in their lives generally. Um, and those services to our harm parties are you know, as robust a part of the work we do as the accountability work we do with the people responsible for harm. And that raises a question that I'm not sure is answered in the book. How have you gotten, for instance, prosecutors to go along with this diversion? So, if it's called diversion, yeah, we call it diversion, and you know, it's to the Brooklyn District Attorney's enormous credit, um, and the for being the first, and the Bronx District Attorney's enormous credit for being the second um, to to do this with us. I think ultimately the reason. The reason they will do it is because the more seasoned a prosecutor is, if they really continue to, um, if they remain honest through, like, and honest with themselves about what they are seeing in their day-to-day -day work, they will come to terms with the fact that the solutions available to them, like the tools of the toolbox that have only prison and jail in them, are inadequate to do anything like serve justice and safety consistently. And prosecutors who are people of integrity in those roles will want tools that actually will let them serve justice and safety. But I think more important than their integrity, honestly, is their voter base. Um, part of why Brooklyn um, has become such a robust site for the work and why there is an appetite for it in the Bronx is about who the constituents are. So when Ken Thompson ran for election here in Brooklyn, um, may he rest in peace, the vast majority of people who put him in office were from neighborhoods impacted by crime and violence, neighborhoods impacted by incarceration. And so in those neighborhoods, people aren't thinking just about the one or two cases that make it into the news. They're not thinking about just this public narrative that we're talking about. They are thinking about their own lived experience of the terrible failure of the experiment of mass incarceration to deliver on the promise of safety. And they will have an appetite for an elected leader who will do something better and different because their lives depend on it. And they will hold that leader accountable to that change. So this may have a similar answer, but you suggest, for instance, both ending mandatory minimums and ending our reliance on lengthy sentences, two things I have been pushing for for a long time. I just worked for over half a year to get what I will admit was mild sentencing reforms passed at the federal level. <laughs> and at many times, even that seemed nearly impossible. How do we confront the politics of reform in order to get more fundamental reforms done? So I think there's, you know, there's work we can do with the people who currently hold office um, to help them understand that um, who it will benefit from these changes to include crime survivors among the people who encourage them toward reform, among the people who stand up and protect them if they're criticized for reform, that those are important political strategies. But more than that, I think the fundamental strategy is about organizing. Like we focus so much on advocacy, which is about how you persuade people currently in office to do something different part of what's possible in organizing is putting different people in office, you know, is making sure that the people in office are actually reflective of and answerable to the people whose lives will be affected by the choices they make. And when we do that, people behave differently, not necessarily because they're better, not necessarily because they get it more deeply, but because everybody knows who can fire them, including elected officials. Um, and when we do real base building work, there is a power we have to influence their decisions that will always exceed the, the limited power we get through the persuasive work of advocacy. 
you do a really great job exposing how the system claims, uh, well, actually doesn't meet all of uh, victims' needs. You talk about, in the end of the book, us needing a healing infrastructure. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So one of the things um, that we fail to think about is what we do once violence has been caused. We only think about what we do to the person who was hurt, and we think very little about what we do for the survivor. And so, like, imagine you're on a, you were hiking down a mountain, and somebody came up behind you and shoved you down to the ground, and you broke your leg, and were there bleeding. If you were walking with our current criminal justice system at this moment, that system would leave you and chase that person down the mountain and beat them up in your name. And you would bleed out on the mountain with your broken leg. What we need is a system that actually gets you down the mountain. We need a series of structures that actually support you in mending that wound and walking again and talking to other people who have experienced similar injuries so you can learn things about how to recover from it. That healing infrastructure will not be mostly the criminal justice system. In fact, it will be very, very, very little of that. It will be mostly people who are service providers and neighbors and others who are resourced and equipped to show up to you and your healing and support you in coming through it. And what's true is that Healed people are very, are like vibrant contributors to their communities, are better parents and neighbors, and are far less likely to hurt other people as well. And so an investment in healing is an investment in safety, while at the same time, it's just an investment in the inherent dignity of people who did not deserve to be hurt, but were. So... The last uh, one of the last things that I, I wanted to discuss is that uh, you talk about the need for cultural change. And I think uh, one of my favorite another pro- favorite part of the book to me is this uh, reference you make to the ru- movie The Matrix. You say the lead character is in a large empty room where he can conjure up anything he can imagine, anything at all to help him secure justice. His answer, guns, lots of guns. <laughs> and so now that I have you in kind of the position, if you were in that same situation as Neo was in in the movie, uh, how would you change the culture? I'm assuming you're not going to answer guns, lots of guns. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's sort of two different answers. The thing is, in, a, in an individual case, like the the thing I would do is, you know, create pathways to distribute the power to answer that question to the people who are actually hurt. Right, to understand that people know what is right for them and will ask for those things and deserve to get those things and that they won't be the same in every case, right? So that it would have to be an answer that made room for that kind of variety in human experience. But more globally, the thing we have to do as a country is we have to answer for what we have done. You know, we have put, and this is mostly white people, because we have mostly held power in this country. Like, we have put people in cages, separated from their families, their loved ones, their young children, and we've tortured them there, and they've been subjected to physical violence and sexual violence and degradation and abuse with no concrete benefit to public safety. And we have done that in the name of victims whose pain we have weaponized without their consent and without benefit to their healing or benefit that goes entirely either, you know, financial benefit that goes to corporations or political benefit that goes to elected officials, but virtually nothing of any good that goes to those survivors. And we've done this for hundreds of years, and we've done it either as people who knew exactly the harm we were causing or as people who should have known. But there's no other category but those two. And I believe in the same way we talked earlier about what accountability looks like in the cases of interpersonal harm, that that same accountability is required of us as a country, and particularly white people in this country, in answering for the system that we have either created or allowed to persist in our names. And I think the steps are the same. We acknowledge what we do. We acknowledge its impact. We express genuine remorse. 
We make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those harmed, and we become a people in a nation who will never cause that harm ever again. It's not an easy thing to choose accountability. It's not an easy thing to steer into reckoning, but I believe it's the only right thing left. So when you were in Michigan, I guess it was about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, we talked for a couple of minutes and I said, uh, I asked you about kind of shame-based models and what was wrong with them. And you didn't have a lot of time because there were a lot of people and and you just kind of looked at me and you said, read James Gilligan. And so, <laughs> I stand by that answer. <laughs> yeah, it was a good one. I read, the, I read James Gilligan. It's been good for me. Uh, would you like to just, uh, you shout about the book too. Mm-hmm. I just would like to see if you have anything to say about his work real quick. So James Gilligan does... Um, is an extraordinary you know, academic and researcher and clinician and does a lot of work trying to understand why people commit severe violence. And his ultimate conclusion distills down to the idea that shame is the single biggest driver of violence. I find this to be very believable um, from my own experience, from my work, from the rest of what we read. There's a way in which hurting people and feeling our own human dignity are hard things to do at the same time. Um, And the problem is that if shame is a driver of violence, then when our responses to violence are built to increase people's shame, then all they will ever do is increase the amount of violence. What we have to do is we have to treat people as um, the dignified human beings that they are. We have to require that people stand up straight um, in that human dignity. And it's only from that position that we do things like own what we have done, do the work of becoming better, engage in processes of repair, hold others to the standards that we've begun to hold ourselves. Um, Like we don't want a nation of people who are, like slumped over, right? We want a nation of people um, who can stand in the most valuable and dignified portions of their humanity to steer into those things because it's in those things that they will be better and make others better too. So I really, really love the book so much so that I spent most of the last 24 hours trying to figure out a way to reduce my thousand questions <laughs> to a useful amount of questions. Uh, so my last question is always the same. How did I mess up? What should I have done or asked but did not? I don't know that you messed up at all. It's a, it's a great <laughs> question. Um, and I just, I appreciate so much your thoughtful engagement with it. I think the only thing I would add is that... Um, It's really important to me that, like, the book at its most useful will not just let me be the new expert who gets to replace other experts who came before me and said different things. Um, The book at its most useful will help elevate the wide range of expertise of people who know from their own experience what does and doesn't work and who maybe often feel like outliers who feel like the ma- you know the majority of our culture thinks about punishment believes in prison and they must be very strange not to like those 90% of survivors who choose common justice when we ask them what portion of people do you think choose this most people guess around 10% which means like we who know this doesn't work, we who want something else, we who have known it for far too long and suffered the consequences far too much, we are actually the majority. And there's a public narrative that sort of separates us from each other and conceals that fact from us. But I think it's really important to be clear that the positions that I talk about in this book are not my like, brilliant or crazy ideas. They are ideas that are really held by a majority of us, who certainly of those of us who have survived pain, um, and that when we know that we are the majority and start acting as such, we'll have a far better chance of winning. Well, thank you so much for doing the interview. It's a really huge pleasure to have you on Decarceration Nation. Thank you. It's my honor. Well, have a good day. <laughs> Hopefully talk to you again thank sometime. You. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. And now my take. Danielle mentioned that one of the problems with our current system is that it's like we face a zero-sum game between prison or absolutely nothing. On the one hand, you have the people who loudly proclaim that if you can do the crime, you should be able to do the time. And on the other, you have the people who sadly brush aside the problems with caging millions of people as a sad but necessary safety imperative. 
both groups assuming that prison keeps people safe and that no other better options exist. But better options do exist, and prison most certainly does not keep society safe. As a society, we need to start understanding that prison, even accounting for incapacitation, has a criminogenic effect, that it creates bad outcomes, that it generates massive trauma for the people inside prison and for the people outside of prison, and that it most certainly does not keep society or the human beings entrusted to its care safe. As a society... We need to start understanding that our criminal justice system does not create accountability or responsibility for the harms that people have caused. In fact, our criminal justice system gives people powerful incentives to never take responsibility or ever be accountable for the harms that they've caused. It does nothing to address the needs of victims. It doesn't provide them with trauma-informed treatment, mental health care, or actual restitution, or justice reinvestment, or more, most importantly, healing or justice. The system takes billions of dollars, invests all that money into brutality and revenge, all while proclaiming loudly that it is being done in the name of victims. As a society, we need to start understanding that there are alternatives to prison. We have mental health treatment, addiction treatment, behavioral therapy, job training, real and meaningful education, investment in impacted communities, restorative justice, transformative justice. We need to stop believing that the answer to every crime from an unpaid debt to violent assault is prison. And we need to invest in restorative justice as an alternative to incarceration. Accountability and punishment are often mutually eroding concepts, and punishment is always a poor stand-in for justice. We'll know we've started to succeed when every child grows up with the same opportunities as the children in our most privileged neighborhoods, when our system isn't only designed to incarcerate, when our system isn't stunningly racially disparate, and when people are encouraged to be accountable for the harms that they caused. We need a radical reimagining of America's criminal justice system, not because we are radicals, but because our criminal justice system has radically failed to deliver acceptable outcomes. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. Make sure to check out our new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats. If you want to support our podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for, for me, and Robert Alvarez, who's been helping with the website and the newsletter, which you should definitely sign up for. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. I also should probably mention that our the people that do our theme music, Odonis Odonis, have a new uh, EP out. You should also check that out. See you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>